0: Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called So one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the past few years, as we drove our kids home from preschool or kindergarten, uh, Katie and I discovered a pattern to the flood of information uh, coming. From the back of the car, lots of things to share whenever we picked our kids up from preschool or kindergarten. Almost always, we learned random facts about the kids in their class. Okay, So their friend Amelia has a summer birthday just like Clara, which means they get cupcakes at the end of spring. There's, they don't celebrate the birthdays during the year. Joel and Celia are twins, but they're boy and girl twins, not sister twins like Ellie and Joanna. Uh, Johnny gets cookies every day for a snack, so why can't I? (laughs) Johnny frustrated us. (laughs) They sometimes told us what they learned about colors or numbers or reading or the books the teacher read or songs they sang. But our kids almost always circled back around to tell us with the gravity of a seasoned reporter delivering breaking news about their special job in the classroom. For young kids especially, teachers tend to assign specific roles with responsibilities every week. If you've been in a kindergarten or preschool class at all, you've probably seen those on the wall. So these jobs are varied, they're different, but there's one for every kid every week. So whenever they go somewhere, someone gets to be the line leader and also a caboose. According to our kids, both are important because without the caboose, somebody might get left behind. But being the line leader is kind of like the epitome, like you're like the king for that week. The electrician uh, turns lights on and off. Leaving the playground, the counter practices numbers because they help count everybody in line. The door holder gets to, what do you think? Hold doors. (laughs) That's right. They hold doors. The lunch helper hands out lunch boxes. Someone moves the magnet on the calendar. Uh, another leads prayer time. They say uh, that being the, the meteorologist is actually the boring job unless there's something like a thunderstorm or snow, because they're the ones that actually get to tell the class officially what is happening outside, even though everybody knows because they just look out the window. <laughs> Our kids never just really talked about their jobs either. They love them. and their eyes, doing their job symbolizes growth, They're growing from babies to big kids. They have a job now. They weren't just learning, they were a part of something bigger. The work that they did tied the class together. These jobs united all these children for a common purpose. And as they did their jobs, they didn't start to just grow up, they started to grow together. In our scripture today, the Apostle Paul applies a similar logic to the spiritual growth, not just of the early church, but but all believers. At the halfway mark of his letter, Paul shifts gears from, from describing the spiritual foundation of the church to what being the church looks like in the everyday life of believers. And reminding them of his own imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, Paul challenges the Ephesians to model their life in a manner worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, for Paul, this spiritual growth is not a potential effect, but it is a a basic consequence of knowing Jesus. If what Christ has done on the cross matters at all, then the lives of his people will show genuine signs of spiritual transformation as they grow together as God's people. Paul stresses this right from the beginning in this chapter. He, In the very first sentence of the chapter where he begs the Ephesians to live by the Holy Spirit. And he does it again at the very end where he reminds them that they have all been called into spiritual maturity. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, their interactions with the world and especially other people will begin to reflect the personality and character of their Savior. Now this is far from some vague ideal because he outlines how believers should interact with people in and outside the church. And how they interact proves that their faith is not remaining in childhood, but growing up and working toward a common purpose. If they are doing these particular things, then it means that they are growing. So in this context, Paul mentions five things every growing Christian pursues in their relationships with other people. And he does this very quickly, and so we're going to go quickly through this too. First... Paul says a growing Christian interacts with others in all humility. Uh, In the scripture uh, that I read this morning, it says, be completely humble. Early Christians combined several Greek words uh, to encourage a sense of ongoing humility. C.S. Lewis uh, describes it like this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. A believer is always aware of their position in relation to others, seeking not to fulfill their own needs, but the needs of others. Second, a growing Christian will exhibit gentleness. This means that our disposition towards others isn't harsh or inconsiderate, but intentionally calm and kind. Gentleness sets aside our anger, our our agenda, our schedule, our plans, our desires, and chooses to love people exactly where they are. In an outraged world, which we live in, believers are called to greet every person they meet, not with anger, but kindness and love. Third, a growing Christian remains patient, even when things don't go their way, or they face deliberate frustration and persecution. Remember, the early church did face uh, deep persecution from the surrounding Culture And so when Paul says you need to be patient, it is, uh, it is a tall task. It's a hard request. In scripture, this word describes how the Lord withholds his anger towards his rebellious children. For us, this means that even when we face the thousand potential conflicts and frustrations of a normal day, we will still take time to respond to others as the Lord responds to us. We should all have an extremely long and slow-burning fuse that rarely ignites, especially when it comes to interactions with others. Fourth, a growing Christian bears other people's failures, not with resentment but love. When someone irritates us or lets us down or disappoints us, we are called to take a deep breath. And remember that all people are made in God's image. Even people that hurt us or make decisions that frustrate us deserve our respect because they are also children of God. Finally, a growing Christian is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, which joins each one of us to one another's transformation. Now, all of these virtues aren't vague platitudes, but they're clearly defined steps toward spiritual maturity, which results in unity of mind and heart and purpose. Like pieces of a puzzle, we have been placed in a particular community by the spirit of the living God. We are part of this church, this body of believers, this community, because our God believes our presence here around all of these wonderful and broken people will increase our faith and bring us into deeper relationship with Jesus. We can sort of summarize all of this uh, by saying that growing Christians are called to perfectly love others because Christ has perfectly loved us. Unfortunately, our natural tendency is to operate in the opposite fashion. Although Paul makes clear a growing Christian operates from a position of selflessness, the default of our hearts is self-centeredness. Even if we love Jesus, we too often fall into habits that revolve around our own needs and desires. We're like infants aware only of their most pressing needs. We are primarily concerned with ourselves and what we want long before we start to think about how our decisions might affect or hurt other people. Puritan John Owen recognizes human trait as a, predisp- a predisposition to idolatry. He wrote, selfishness is the making a man's self his own center, the beginning and end of all that he does. Paul sees that selfishness turns people inward, disconnecting believers from, from anyone whose primary concern doesn't align with their own priorities. And where selfishness exists, where we're only concerned about ourselves, then conflict tends to erupt. John Calvin wrote, uh, where, well, he says whence, whence come rudeness, pride, and disdainful language towards brethren. Whence comes quarrels and insults and reproaches, come they not from this, that everyone carries his love of himself and his regard to his own interests to excess. Instead of seeking humility, we settle, typically settle for the easy but never never satisfying rush of pride. Instead of learning the joy of gentleness, we passively ignore the hurts of others. Instead of practicing patience, we are quick to anger. Instead of bearing with one another in love, we call out people's Failures. Paul warns the Ephesians that this self-interest eventually severs. It disconnects. It cuts our meaningful connection with others. We're like a boat untethered from a dock in the middle of a storm. And so we drift away from our identity as children of God. We, We are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In the end, we find ourselves alone in the rough seas of a broken world. And so we find ourselves in a strange position as believers. If we want to grow in our faith, we are required to do things to practice virtues seemingly beyond our natural ability. We are called to pursue the unity of the Spirit, but we fall short because we inevitably focus on ourselves instead of others. But our hope rests in Paul's initial proclamation. Rather than encourage the Ephesians to pursue to pursue, to pursue unity as something to attain or accomplish, Paul tells them to maintain what they have already received through Jesus. If you notice the difference, Paul doesn't say you need to go work hard for this so you might get there one day. He says you already have this, so maintain it. Unity is not an impossible standard that we have to achieve. It is a gift established among us by the death of Jesus on the cross. Paul wants us to understand that Christian unity isn't just an added benefit of the Christian life, but it is a consequence of the Spirit's presence in the lives of believers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that Christian brotherhood, Christian unity, is not an ideal which we must realize, but rather a reality created by God and Christ in which we may participate The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our unity rests in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think about our fellowship, our unity, and pray and hope for it. Paul wants the Ephesians and us to live into the unity already established by Christ's death on the cross and promised to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. For Paul, this happens in three distinct way- ways. First, the unity of the Spirit reminds us that Jesus has already created an eternal connection with other believers. In Ephesians 4 2, Paul mentions that we must love one another in the bond of peace. Although we typically think of peace as an absence of conflict, the Greek word For peace, irene comes from the verb ero, which means to join or bind together that which has been broken or separated. For Paul, every believer has been eternally joined to each other through Christ's death. The unity amongst believers then can be understood with simple logic, right? They used to teach logic in schools, but here we go. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ, then it follows that what? We are in Christ. Together. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural connection that ties us to Jesus, also ties us to other believers, not just here in Jasper, but over the entire world. We are connected. Second, every connection that we have with another believer serves as an additional avenue of access to our Savior. In 4.16, Paul compares the church to the physical body. Now, in this analogy, every part re- receives life from one source, the head, which is Jesus. Paul considers every point of contact between believers uh, a, an avenue, another outlet which we can plug into through which we might experience the love of Jesus and the movement of the Spirit. C.S. Lewis Uh, puts it this way. He says, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need other lights than my own to show all his facets. It's the same with our picture of God. Every soul, every person, Seeing him in their own way communicates that unique vision to the rest of us, which enlarges our vision of the whole. Through others, we see Jesus more clearly. We see Jesus more clearly through others. Finally, the unity of the Spirit keeps us focused on becoming more like Jesus. There is a goal for Paul here in this letter. The unity Christ established between his children is not a perk, but it's essential to our spiritual growth as children of God. If we want our faith to grow, then how we treat others matters. Whenever we allow conflict to reign, we allow our selfish natures, instead of the nature of Christ, to take control. Any conflict that leads us away from humility or patience or gentleness and love prevents us from moving forward, and more importantly, closer to Jesus. John Calvin wrote about this passage, We should dread, as believers, every kind of animosity if we duly reflected that all who separates us from our brothers and sisters estrange us also from the kingdom of God. Without unity, we are like cars without tires. We are like planes without wings. We are singers without a voice. We are incomplete and unaware that we are not even close to being what we were meant to be. But the good news is that with his blood, Christ has already joined us together. He has already made us one so we might not strive toward him alone. He has assembled us together. All we must do is work with one another to declare his love to the world. And his kingdom will grow in ways that we have scarcely imagined. The qualities of spiritual growth that Paul talks about here are impossible to pursue without help. But when the love of God takes root in our hearts, we are free to be the kind of people our God expects us to be together. The Holy Spirit unites us. And the unity that we find there reminds us that we are all striving toward the same goal together. We are becoming more like Jesus. Unity. Walking together hastens our transformation into reflections of our King. So let us pursue what we have already been given. Let us grow up and become more like Jesus and become his true church here and now. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.